Hey folks, Randy Newberg here, and uh, I'm sitting in Bozeman, Montana, and we are doing the Hunt Talk podcast, which is subtitled Randy Newberg Unfiltered. And <laughs> I'm sitting here with Dan Doty, who is a good friend, and uh, he's going to help us with the production aspects. He's a podcast expert who... <laughs> I don't think that's quite true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll pretend. What do they say? An expert is a guy from a neighboring county who nobody knows. <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> so Dan is with the 0.0 crew. They produce the Meat Eater TV show, and I've been friends with them for a long time. And now that they've located an office in Bozeman, uh, Dan is convinced me the value of doing podcasts so this is our our effort to try talk about issues that the hunting world strays away from that maybe you don't get in the depth that you could from other platforms and we're going to see where that takes us and then my other guest here today is someone you've seen on our fresh tracks and on your own adventures tv shows he's a good friend of mine his name is bernie Kuntz, and besides being a uh, world famous uh, hunter. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Bernie is one of those humble guys who I have a category of people. I call them the best hunters nobody knows about, and Bernie falls into that category. And he's very humble, um, but he's well read, very educated, um, former Vietnam Marine who. He knows I'm jealous of the two grand slams of sheep that are on his wall. And how, Bernie, how you managed to do that as a state employee for what, 30 or 40 years? Yeah, well, I, uh, you got to remember back when I hunted sheep the first time, 1976, I, I went on a bighorn hunt in Wyoming for $1,500, and I hunted desert sheep in, in uh, Arizona for $1,800. Okay. So, I mean, so there's a, a huge disparity in the cost then and now right of course i wasn't making a lot of money either <laughs> well i was you, making fifteen thousand a year but, but but we hear that you you state agency people are always so overpaid bernie you were working for <laughs> wyoming game and fish at that yeah, time well you used to make up my taxes you know the huge <laughs> state paychecks i used to get but uh, oh, well. yeah, but i drove old pickup trucks most of my life too yeah to, and I didn't buy any toys. Yeah, but you're, I've you're, never owned a snowmobile or an ATV. Or, but you make up for it with your cigar habit. Yeah, and fine <laughs> rifles and handmade <laughs> knives. So anyhow, we've, <clears throat> we've uh, got Bernie Kuntz with us here. And I'm, before we get into topics, I'm just going to give the audience a little bit of an understanding of what Randy Newberg Unfiltered, the Hunt Talk podcast, is going to be about. Not just this episode, but future episodes and what we plan to do with this is it's going to be a bi-weekly discussion with randy and his friends uh, we're going to be talking about hunting public access pretty much all things related to the public land hunter and they're probably going to hear some things that they didn't need to know i mean what do they call that dan tmi too much information <laughs> too much information <laughs> TMI. so we we have the big hunt talk forum as part of our tv show and that's why the podcast is also called the hunt talk radio hunt talk podcast and so out on hunt talk in the last month i started a thread saying what kind of topics do you guys want to want us to talk about and it's amazing it's just 
just a string of incredible topics that are relevant to the public land hunter. So how how we're going to do that is every time we do an episode, we're going to go to those threads out on Hunt Talk and pick out who are the top, who are the guests, and who are the topics that we think people are interested in. So that's kind of how we got here. And, uh, you know, Dan, I'm, I'm going to blame you for this. Please. <laughs> Whether it succeeds or fails, it's going to be Dan's fault. It's, I almost feel like... It, you know how your wife asks your opinion, but she really doesn't want your opinion? <laughs> You're just the fallback in case it doesn't work out. Well, I asked for your opinion, and now I don't like it, so it's, it's your fault. Well, I, I can handle that responsibility. I asked my wife last night, I asked her an opinion. Why, of all the people you know, hunters obviously better than me, and people obviously as knowledgeable as me, or, or more so, why did you select me for this podcast? And she said, well, he probably doesn't know anybody who talks as much as you do. <laughs> well, there, there's some truth to that. So how this podcast came to be is last May, Dan Doty from 0.0 and Giannis Butelis from 0.0, we'd thought about, them produce 0.0 producing our fresh tracks tv show so we said we're gonna go to alaska and we're gonna try shoot a pilot episode and if you know anything about southeast alaska and black bear hunting we hit one of those stretches where it rained six out of seven days oh yeah yeah it, it was brutal and so we had a lot of time to talk about production issues and solve the world's problems as it relates to this fear of hunting and dan's like randy you are the guy who needs a podcast and yeah i thought so then and i still think so now i think uh actually i think originally it was radio right just just the idea that you should have a platform to, to talk and i could see you being a great radio personality but technology what it is right now and sort of the landscape um podcasts are really the where it's at honestly in, in a lot of ways and yeah i'm excited and i'll take the responsibility if this is terrible <laughs> write me a letter <laughs> write me an email i don't mind it's fine well you guys are doing the the meat eater podcast with steve Ranella. yeah and i listen to that a lot and it's great stuff i i love the fact that in a podcast format you don't have the confines of of what we have on tv when i'm producing fresh tracks i've got 22 minutes and i've got network production guidelines just like you guys do it's it feels confining almost suffocating at times it's like putting on a tight jacket yeah yeah, yeah. You might, maybe you went to thanksgiving and ate way too much food and then you got to put your, your your suit jacket on it doesn't fit anymore it's <laughs> right. it, tv never really fits my, my my grandpa had a better analogy rest his soul he said it's like fitting dolly pardon in a training bra (laughs) (laughs) you wouldn't say that in tv would you oh i couldn't say that in tv exactly i mean i I get thrown off the network for making such a uh, an analogy well it's not an analogy using such commentary from my grandfather but no i i'm excited because what i've seen you guys do with the meat eater podcast has really pushed some of these topics down the road further where they need to go and bernie and i have talked a lot about his his hunting career if you want to call it that 
he how old are you burning 66 66 so what he has seen in his life of hunting compared to me at age 50 compared to you dan in your early 30s i mean we're talking about some major major changes that have happened and a lot of it is in the media world of hunting the technology side of hunting and i think the advent of outdoor tv is some of that the change of how magazines work how hunters i guess consume media uh is a big part of that so those are things that today we're going to talk about and for those of you listening you're going to find that there is no real path to podcasts is that correct dan no it's a very almost formless uh, medium you really can do <laughs> whatever you'd like to do which is wonderful yeah uh, for me once we start on a topic i don't want to feel the pressure that we got to move on to the next one to fit it in 22 minutes of content Exactly. If Bernie wants to talk about the fact that he collects fine rifles <laughs> and makes fun of the fact that mine all have synthetic stock, <laughs> I want to sit here and have that debate. Because I go to his house and I see this row of wonderful, beautiful looking rifles, and there's no way I'd take one of those out in the places <laughs> I go. Because I'd be replacing stocks on that fine walnut in that checkering. I'd be replacing stocks every week. But uh, uh, to me, that's just an indication of the gener- maybe generational differences. The I think the- it is, too. I, uh, I'm astonished today that 40 years ago, if I went out hunting with several other guys, usually they would comment on, well, on the stock. Well, who did the checkering? What kind of wood is that? And today, the young hunters... I've got a synthetic stock, and they don't even notice my rifle. Yeah. <laughs> but it's for my enjoyment, not theirs. So, right. So, so it doesn't bother me. You know, that it is amazing, though, to, to notice the transformation from, from synthetic, from walnut stocks to synthetic over the course of a couple decades. It's yeah. amazing to and, me. And you've completely rejected that, Bernie. I think that makes I you I have a, one rifle with a synthetic okay. stock. Does that make you a hunting curmudgeon? <laughs> I am a curmudgeon. <laughs> I, al- I am also a old doddering, barely walking, bad advertisement for Bridger Orthopedic and the Billings Clinic. <laughs> So, Are you saying that they couldn't repair your cobbled body? They to could the deg- not. They, they could, could not, not make you a thirty-year-old. On the way here, Bernie said, "Oh, what I wouldn't give to be thirty years old again." Yeah, this last surgeon, uh, I said, uh, "I take it that my six-mile-a-day pheasant hunts are over." Well, he says, "We'll shoot for four miles." <laughs> I'm not even at fifty yards. So, uh, but you'll get there. Uh, I don't think so. I think my pheasant hunting days are over. But I had some good days. Yeah. Well. For those of you who watch our show, um, Bernie and I did an elk hunt in On Your Own Adventures, did a Nevada elk hunt where you had a tag. And then this year, coming up in the middle of July, they're going to get to see you down in New Mexico shooting a beautiful pronghorn. And in that episode, I remind people that Bernie has a is the owner of our traveling profanity trophy. <laughs> and Dan, Dan's looking at me like, do I need the bleeper button now or later? I can't believe I beat out your Uncle Larry, though. Come on. Oh, Bernie, you, you guys are neck and neck. But I, I, I think the words you used, 
You you both have the I have same more fluency. Yes, you you are a multi language profanity expert. Thank you very much, Larry. My uncle, you know, we grew up in northern Minnesota. There's only like four really good words that he knows. You've got handfuls of them. There's times I got to say, "What did you say?" Because I'd never heard it I before. Can insert adverbs among adjectives yeah. and nouns. And- yeah, exactly. So anyhow, we're already getting off topic. All right, all right. To to the point of. Of the three of us sitting here, um, I think, Dan, your generation is very uh, embracing of technology. My generation, we're kind of trying to stay there, but we're kind of almost on the coattails of Bernie's generation who, you know, for them, it's like, I want my wools, I want my old, old pack boot, and I want my four power rifle scope. Bingo. (laughs) I'm not going to speak for my entire generation because I am very primitive. I mean, I call myself Mr. Smith Corona. I still own an IBM Selectric 3 typewriter, and I use it all the time. I do do write a weekly column, and I've been doing it for 41 years, and I use a computer, and I attach the document and email it when the thing is working. But... uh, my IBM Selectric 3, on, off. On, off. Yeah. No okay. crashing. Well, no. That, that fits your style. Bro. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I mean, that's why you're at I'm peace with yourself. Yeah. And I don't wear pack boots. I wear a... Whatever. Yeah. What, what do you wear? I wear Russell's. They look like an old moccasin. Yeah, right there. Is it a logging boot, sort of? Yeah, it's a, that's a mountain hunting boot. Yeah. I shot my last four rams wearing these boots. Huh. Well, that, that right there, Dan's barefoot, and, and I'm wearing a pair of Merrill mocks. So right there it shows you the generational differences that you're going to hear about in this podcast. But So getting back to the technology thing, Bernie, we talk about this a lot, you and I. and. I'm I'm guilty as charged. I mean, you the other day I was at your house and I was mounting a scope for you and you said, Randy, I don't need any of that turret crap on my scope. Just bring me an old three by nine with a standard right. everything. And you couldn't find one. All right. I <laughs> I couldn't get you one. And uh so I look at that and say, All right. What does technology have on the imp- what's its impact on hunting opportunity, hunting success rates? I mean, I don't think we can deny that as we embrace technology collectively, that it has an impact on success rates. Well, I think that's for certain. When I started hunting, you know, deer and antelope, I had a BLM map and a compass. And a highway map. Yeah. I mean, that's it. When I went antelope hunting with Randy last summer in New Mexico, I couldn't believe this. And I know the younger hunters listening listening to this will be aghast at how primitive I am. But he had this little smartphone and put a chip in it. And we'd be driving along the gravel road and it would tell us who owned the land on either side of the road. BLM, private. Yeah. Unbelievable. It, it, Unbelievable. Yeah. I, mean, I, I like that sort of stuff. I I would never buy it myself at my age, but yeah. and then the you know, GPS, 
I, I have no idea how to. I, there was a guy that used to work for FWP, and I used to work check stations with him. He was retired from the Forest Service and just worked the check stations to kill some time. And he taught people how to use GPS. Uh-huh. One time he says, well, show me how to use this GPS. I lost him 45 seconds into the instruction. <laughs> I mean, jeez. So what so, time frame, when did you start hunting, and what year was it, Rough? just to get kind of a? I I tagged along, along with my dad when I was six years old. That was 1955. I got my first twenty two when I was nine years old. That's nineteen fifty eight. Got my first shotgun when I was ten, fifty nine. Got my first high powered rifle in nineteen sixty one when I was twelve. First real shotgun, a sixteen gauge when I was thirteen. And it was I mean that was typical for a North Dakota farm kid like you <clears> when I was a I was a railroad kid. Okay. Railroads railroaders son. I would say well, I had a lot of friends who hunted, but my dad bought me more guns than anybody I knew. I owned, he bought me a German-made Mark V 7mm Weatherby when I was 16. You're spoiled. And I still have the rifle. It's on its second barrel. Yeah, I was kind of spoiled, but yeah. then when I got out of the house, I started accumulating my own collection. You you were the, the equivalent of your day whose parent bought their 16 year old a bmw right <laughs> no I, I mean today if someone buys their kid a 16 year old a really fancy car we all say oh you're gonna spoil them bernie's dad's buying them fine german <laughs> rifles at that age i didn't uh, even own a car till i was oh early 20s well, well society was probably better off because of that that's but. probably true but anyhow i want to start getting into the idea of when hunters and I, like I said, I'm guilty as charged. Leupold makes this CDS custom dial system for their scopes so that once you get it calibrated for your loads and everything else, you just take the rangefinder and click, and it says, okay, 330 yards. You spin the dial to 330, and you hold dead on. That is one of those how-did-I-live-without-it kind of awarenesses for me that I I encountered three or four years ago. And earlier, Bernie, you made reference of these GPS map chips. They're made by a company called Onyx Maps over here in Missoula, Montana. And that has probably revolutionized my approach to hunting and where I hunt and where I apply for tags more than anything. So here I am. I'm about ready to engage in this discussion about technology. And I'm, I embrace it. I use it. So we as a hunting community in general... I wonder if we got to accept the fact that technology is making us more lethal. I think it is. And how does that affect hunting opportunity for the Dan generation? I mean, when you look at this, Dan, you probably just accept it as, hey, technology is part of my life. Yeah, I think I I have to. I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s. Late '80s and early '90s, as, as a kid in North Dakota and Minnesota, and and um, you know we didn't have, I didn't have any of that stuff growing up either. But absolutely, I think, uh, I guess, I don't know if I'm right square in the middle. But I mean, my my job, my my pastimes, you know, everything, basically everything I do is is run through uh, my iPhone or my computer, and and I think the recreation and hunting is no different. Um, and that said. 
I'm actually probably more on the primitive side of, of my generation too. And I don't, I don't rely on a lot of technology. I like to go out there with kind of the bare basics and, and just, you know, get it done. But, but, um, it's both, it's both because, you know, in the media career and in the media world, podcasts and TV shows and making all this stuff, I mean, that's a hundred percent technology driven and, um, you know, hunting with Steve Ranella for meat eater, which I have for several years now, um, yeah, it's absolutely just, you know, how things are. Yeah. You know? I mean, I bought my first bow when I was 30, I think I was, 1994. And I shot with a, a, a tab or, you know, a shooting glove. And I I limited myself to about 25 to 30 yards. I mean, 30 was the outside range. And now... Not that I take long shots, but I can stand out in my yard and I can drill a 60-yard target. Why is that? Just because of improvements to the bow, to the arrow flight, to the arrow huh. technology, the bow technology, the broadhead technology, the the sights, the, the everything. And so it gets into this discussion of is technology a plus or a minus because I can guarantee you I'm way more lethal, which in the end hopefully means a greater likelihood of a clean kill and a quick and humane kill. But we, all of us, it's just our nature that we say, hey, my, my equipment allows me to shoot 50 yards now comfortably, whereas before I would have passed on that shot. And the same could be said about these modern muzzle loaders, you know? Yeah, where you shoot... 250, 300 yards with a scoped inline. Right. And, and so... It defeated the, the reason for those special seasons for bow and arrow and for muzzleloader was to supposedly employ primitive weapons. Right. And, and, and now the, who can call that primitive anymore? And that's where you get into these big, ugly debates among hunters. Of, yeah. I think some of us weren't there for the discussions when the first archery and muzzleloader seasons were brought in. And there was resistance to them at that time. I talked to some guys in Montana who established the first archery seasons. And the whole idea was, look, let us out in the woods. We've got these recurve bows or these long bows. We're going to have such a minuscule impact on the resource. And, hey, we're going to pay some excise taxes. We're going to pay some license fees. Let Let us go do it. And so... That and the muzzle loader, the the old style muzzle loaders, those seasons started out and they didn't have that much interest. But like everything, we're we're the American society. We want to build the better mousetrap. And you, I mean, let's look at here in Montana, the Missouri breaks. I was just going to bring that up. Most of the most of the elk killed in the Missouri breaks now are killed by archery hunters. That's right. Is that good or bad? Well. Because archery hunters have a lower success rate, it allows more opportunity among the hunting community up there or or in any of these types of seasons, even if the total kill is now approaching what the rifle kill is there. But your average rifleman who's applying for a 50 to 1 odds permit right. probably will not be so happy about that. Exactly. And so that's... So long term, I think what you're getting at is... Uh, there's going to be have to be some kind of harvest restriction or implementation of more permit seasons due to the efficiency of modern hunters. 
Uh, yeah, that, I guess that's the point I'm getting at, Bernie. And if I was in Dan's shoes or that generation, do I just accept that as, hey, that's the way it is? I'm I'm okay with that. We have been spoiled beyond belief, I think, you and I, because yes. we've lived this period of long seasons, yeah. easy to get tags, lots of general tags or over-the-counter opportunities, and as the lethality of the hunter increases due to technology, is that are those days gone by? To a degree, I think they are. To a degree. Yeah. So I, I look out on our Hunt Talk website, and whenever we have discussions, and we have some really beat-each-other-up kind of discussions out there, a lot of them focus on technology. Um, there's this long-range shooting craze going on right now. Yeah, I, I really hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I used to be... Uh, I, I'm not bragging. I used to shoot on the Marine Rifle Team out of Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, and I was a very good shot when I had a good back and two good legs. And one time I shot a cow elk at 515 paces with my old 7mm Weatherby. I was in prone position across a flat expanse in a river bottom. This is... Uh, and I had a rifle I was familiar with. I had a good idea of the range because I had hunted this area many times before. And I killed the cow elk with one shot. But I was nervous about shooting that far. And when I read about commonplace six and eight hundred yard shots, I mean, those are animals. There's a, they're not enemy troops in the open. They're not targets. Uh, I think it's. I don't like that. I don't like that drift at all. Yeah. And, and uh, along with this, they're using these huge scopes with the turrets that you're right. describing. And I was talking to my old friend John the other day, who was born on the same day as me. And a friend of ours says he can't believe that two people with absolutely nothing to contribute to society were born on the same day. <laughs> but we were. Anyway, John and I were talking about deer hunting in North Dakota. He grew up in the same town as I did. And he said, you know, I never shot a deer in North Dakota that wasn't running. Right. Really? And I said, well, you, oh, know, yeah. you know, now that I think of it, I may have shot a couple, but most of mine were running too. And I said, the big thing in the whole while I hunted, the big thing was having a low enough power scope so I get a running animal in it. That's wow. why a lot of my rifles have four power scopes on them. Yeah. But I shot animals out to 300 yards with a four power scope. And now you got these great big scopes. You could beat a grizzly bear to death with them. The other <laughs> six to 20 power <laughs> scope. Well, uh, you know, and so we there's kind of this discussion in the what were supposed to be primitive weapons, but technology is pervasive in the the normal rifle hunting that probably the majority of listeners participate in. And to that point of those scopes and that technology that you're talking about, Bernie, I read the discussions out on Hunt Talk and I follow them. And we've got some guys out there that are amazing shots. They're engineers. They've got the ballistics yeah. down to absolute. I mean, it's incredible when you go out to the range and watch how accurate they can be. But undeniable to that is as distance increases, 
the ver- the impact variables have of wind, temperature, altitude, yes. conditions are are extended. I, I mean, they they're amplified, and that bullet has to travel some longer distance. That means the animal can turn, can can move slightly. I I don't know. I, I don't want to be the guy who stands there and says that's not the way I do it. So that's the wrong way to do it. And I think we all have to find our own point of comfort of of where we're at. I think that's a good point. Um, But like you said, these aren't targets. These are animals. If I'm not 90% sure that I can make the shot, I won't take the shot. I mean, I remember uh, there in Nevada that time when we saw those bulls running. Mm -hmm. And I think I could have rolled one of those, but... Uh, I think it was a 50-50 chance. Right, and, and you passed. And, yeah, and I, and I would have felt terrible if I would have blew the leg off of one of those and never recovered it. Right. That's what That's what really uh, is in the back of my mind all the time when I'm hunting big game. Do you think that was when you were young? Too? Yes. Oh, the whole, your whole yeah, hunting I, career? Yeah, I, I lost a deer one time in southwestern North Dakota, and uh, I was very upset about that, and I... And I vowed I would do my best never to have it happen again. Well, I lost other deer yeah. over the decades, but my uh, my kill ratio was. So for me, it's you know, you know, talking like the idea of technology being more lethal. Just one little story about a wounded or lost deer makes me part of me say, "Bring on the technology right. and make it as lethal as possible," because otherwise, well, the. That's a good point. Like those rangefinders, mm-hmm. I've never owned a rangefinder in my life, but but uh, that will tell you that the the animal is four hundred and twenty five yards rather than three hundred, as right. you may have guessed. But this increased technology will allow ambitious people to shoot farther and farther and right. farther. And where do you draw the line? <clears throat> And and I think that's where the arguments start is where do you draw the line? And we as human people, I mean, we're human beings. We have a tendency to say, well, as long as it's reducing how some other person hunts and not my method of hunting, I'm okay with that. <laughs> you know, that's just the human human nature of, of how we are. And I, I think one of the, the things that gets lost in that discussion is we in our, the hunting community have our own arguments and debates, but there's also people watching us from the outside. Yes, indeed. And when you turn on a TV show and somebody is at 650 yards from an elk, and I saw this on an episode, the guy says, well, my personal best is 730. I'm going to move back to 800. Oh, no. Yeah. How, uh, it's almost like, someone you know you're getting merit badges for how far away you can get which is completely counterintuitive to me me of, too i want to get as close as yes. i can yes and so when you start seeing that and i understand that it's because these people are trying to sell their their product because it's shows based on long range hunting or long range shooting or whatever. I just think it's so disrespectful to that animal. Exactly, I, I agree. It's so disrespectful. I think that is 
one of the most destructive things to hunting that you could conceive of is to have a non-hunter. I'm offended as a hunter when I see stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, I can't imagine what a non-hunter would feel. Yeah, and so Dan and I produce enough TV that we know what creative editing can do. Oh, yeah. And when we start deciding we're going to move back further and back further just to demonstrate our marksmanship, that starts entering into this world where the viewer knows that what they are seeing on TV may not necessarily be how it unfolded in the field. Yeah. And I know I'm going to get hammered for saying this, but I, I, I don't know if, I think the technology can be expressed and promoted in a positive way. But when I start seeing these shows bragging about how far away we were instead of how close we could get, uh, I don't know. It's it's a hard one for me. Just like you're, I saw when I said that, Bernie. I saw you almost rise up out of your chair, like we're gonna have to scrape you off the ceiling. But then to hear Dan, you know, thirty years younger than you, say the same thing, to me that's disrespectful to hunting and the animal. Recently, there's a meat eater podcast. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, that the major topic was optics, technology, and, and long range shooting came into it. And that was one point that kind of got broken out was that at that point it's shooting it's it's not really hunting yes. and and i think that's a, a good um way to separate it and i would rather that that shooting not be at living breathing right animals by the way i shot shooting. my very first sheep a rocky mountain bighorn in wyoming yeah. at 25 yards <laughs> i shot my biggest caribou in alaska at 35 yards yeah well i i <laughs> I and again, this is where I struggle. I, I think we as a community struggle. We as individuals struggle about where is that comfort zone. And I don't think Randy's comfort zone is someone else's comfort zone. But I do think we all, most anyhow, would agree that as hunters and who we are and our fit in society our responsibility to the animals and to each other, getting as close as we can, whatever distance that is, is better than saying, oh, that's fine, I can I can lob one in from here. And uh, that could apply with rifles, it could apply with a bow, a that's muzzle, true. or whatever. So I always like to <clears throat> I always like to believe that if I can hit a paper plate at a given distance, then I'm you know, like eight times out of ten. Yeah then I'm justified in making a shot at that distance. And my my uh, range has shrunk appreciably with my age. I am I, uh, very limited anymore. I, you know, 25, 30 years ago, I would have taken a shot that I'd pass up today Yeah, in a it, minute. And that's interesting you say that. Is that age? Age I and think. infirmity, seriously, yeah. infirmity. Uh, when you, It's like being a baseball player. And your legs don't work right. You're not going to be a very good hitter. Yeah. And when your legs don't work right, it affects your shooting too. Yeah. So I, I realize my limitations, and I'm I'm not going to exceed them yeah. anymore. Well, I, I think part of the technology spread in hunting is reflective of society as a whole. I think we like to look at our community and say we're different than society as a whole. But I don't 
know that we really are. I mean, thank God Al Gore invented the internet, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it, <laughs> especially for Luddites like Bernie. Uh, I know you're. That's a, a good word for me, Luddite. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being, and I look at the Hunt Talk Forum and the amount of good information that gets spread on our forum. And I get these comments from guys all the time. Randy, thanks for having this forum. Man, I'm learning a lot. And that's helpful. I mean, I think it is too. No longer do we have to sit around the campfire to distribute information about whether it's technology or hunting tactics or ideas or political issues. Or you get a once in a month, a monthly magazine. Right. Which is the way it was 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. And I loved magazines. I made my living working for a magazine in Wyoming. Right. Uh, but, yeah, that, that is a huge advancement in communications. And, and I think, I don't know, you guys would maybe differ, but I think the Internet, like all facets of society, have changed hunting in a huge, huge way. I mean, when I first started applying for tags throughout the West, it was in 1993, huh. and I was probably the only guy I knew who was dumb enough to send their money to Colorado and Arizona and Nevada and have to argue with my wife about why we were short on the budget that month because I just you know, sent it all to some other state. Now I look at, you know, again, I, I'll refer back to my, my uh, portal of where I get a lot of my technology, Hunt Talk. Probably the majority of those guys are hunting in at least one other state other than their yes. home state. And before the advent of internet, thanks again to Al, um, <laughs> I don't think people even knew those opportunities existed. So that's between technology of our hunting technology, like how to shoot longer distances, how this, how that, new clothing, new packs, new boots. We're also sharing information about new opportunities. So now we got a lot more hunters competing for the same opportunities. When I got out of college, I got a job in uh, at a big daily in North Dakota, 150 bucks a week, and I was living in an attic that had been made into an apartment for 70 bucks a month. And I made a vow that if I ever got out of this racket and got a better paying job, I was going to start applying for sheep permits in the West. Okay. In 1975, I got hired at Wyoming Game and Fish Department to be associate editor of their magazine, eight sixty six a month before taxes. <laughs> I thought I was rich. I, st- I applied the next year in New Mexico, did not draw. I drew a bighorn permit in Wyoming and another one in Arizona for desert sheep. Um, that puts you so far ahead of the curve for your time, Bernie. Yeah, but nobody else I knew. I knew some guys who were applying for resident sheep permits in Wyoming. I was still a non-resident, technically. I had to live there a year. But I didn't know anybody who was applying for sheep in four or five different states. Uh, But as you point out, I'll bet you everybody on that forum, as you you said, is applying in least one other state than where they're living. Yeah. And so that's ballooned over the last 10, 20 years. And, of course, your odds have decreased appreciably. <laughs> I mean, I've been applying. I, I told my wife I sent in my 32nd application for Montana Bighorn this year. 
uh, 30 years as a resident and two as a non-resident. Uh-huh. And I've never drawn. I right. draw your tears. Uh, yeah, I will, Bernie. Yeah, you, you, you who has two grand slams, I'm going to really cry for you. I've never drawn a sheep tag in my life, and I'm I'm already age fifty, and I've been applying in all these states forever. That's which uh, then then gets me. You know, I'll just jump into another topic about these elaborate schemes these western states have that are very complicated. Oh. And I sat on the committee where Montana developed our bonus point scheme. And for the listeners who aren't familiar, most of the Western states you have to apply, and it's almost like a lottery. You send your name in, and most states, for each year you're unsuccessful, you either get a bonus point or a preference point. Well, I sat on that committee, and that was in 1999, I believe, so I was 35 years old. And I was... 15 years younger than the next youngest person on the committee. And so I advocated, you know, we got new hunters coming into the ranks here. Maybe we shouldn't put all of these tags into the bonus or preference point system. Let's keep a couple of them out here as random tags. Like Wyoming does. Right, or like some other states do, so that a new hunter has an opportunity. I I think that's a great idea, but your idea... Went nowhere. It went nowhere, Bernie. Those guys looked at me like, can we throw you out now or do we have to wait until the lunch hour? So, so, so I'm sitting there in all these western states. I've got anywhere from 15 to 20 sheep points or moose points or whatever it might be. A guy like Dan, he's, you know, say someone's in their late 20s and they get into this gig. Their odds, because all of us old gray hair, no hair types have stacked the deck in our favor so greatly yep. that the younger hunters, if I was in that situation, I don't know that I'd even bother applying. You, you, you could apply 30, 40 years before you draw and think of all the application fees that you'd be paying over those years. And by the time you draw, you'd be an old doddering guy like me <laughs> and wish you hadn't drawn. <laughs> would you really tell somebody not to do it? Though? Uh, I don't no, I don't think I would. Oh. I'm too crazy for that stuff. I, I quit. Well, I, I drew twice in Wyoming for sheep, and I, I started applying again you know, a decade ago and, or 12 years ago, and I, uh, I quit about six, seven years ago, because I knew I couldn't handle it physically. And I quit Colorado. I had 11 or 12 points there, and I quit Nevada this year. I had 14, 15 points for California Bighorn. But uh, you make a good point. There should be a pool of general draw tags available so the 14-year-old or 15-year-old who applies the very first time has a mathematical chance of drawing. Otherwise, it's like these once-in-a-lifetime once permits, like Arizona. You draw sheep permits once in a lifetime. Yeah. Well, I drew in 76, and I still bought raffle tickets from the Arizona Desert Sheep Society, but my interest in Arizona Desert Sheep would have been higher if I could have applied again in 25 years. Mm-hmm. I think... Sheep permits ought to be once in 25 years. Yeah. And I think that there ought to be a 25% pool for, for where, where anybody can draw. Yeah. I, I mean, but mostly states, you're stacked 
and, old guys are right, and we're stacking the deck even further. And I'll give you an example in Montana. It was two legislative sessions ago. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Okay, there there were two things. One died and one passed. The the geriatric hunting community said, we need to carve out a bunch of these tags that you got to be 65 years old in order to draw one because we're going to yeah. die before we draw. <laughs> yeah. Well, that fortunately, that died. that died a quick death. But one of the things we did is we decided we're going to square our bonus point. So Randy, I think right now, well, if you have max points in Montana, you're sitting on 14 points. So you square that. What's that? 140 plus another 56. I I got like almost 200 random numbers assigned to me. Whereas the 15 year old, even if they started three years earlier, they got 10. Yeah. I mean, so when most of us in Montana have maximum points, do these squaring and other elaborate schemes really help us help our individual odds enough that it's worth the damage it does to discouraging younger hunters from having any interest? I in? don't think is it really good. a discourage though, or do you think it's this un, almost unattainable thing that people get obsessed about and want to do? I don't know if it discourages people. Do you think? Oh, really? it can, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know either. I'm not I, sure. I'm not sure either because I've been so lucky. I. Yeah. I, for, I, for you to say that, Dan, is uh, I'm like I, I sat up in my chair. I'm like, really? You, you don't find it discouraging? Well, I don't know. It depends. I just I see most of the folks that really take it seriously and are applying for points. You know, in mm-hmm. I mean, it's a uh, it's a pretty obsessive type personality. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and is, like <laughs> one thing that distressed me no end. I, I remember oh, 18, 20 years ago when. If a resident applied for a sheep permit, you had to come up with, I think it was $125. It wasn't that long. Yeah, it was $75. Yeah, it was 75 Then they went to $125, did not they? Yeah, and now. And then so many whining resident hunters protested that they couldn't come up with $125. They said, well, just come up with $75, and if you draw, we'll bill you for the other 50 yeah. Well, that still wasn't good enough for him. Correct. So now we have a $10 non-refundable application fee. So everybody's grandma and grandkids and nephew and niece get into the draw, and it's further made the odds worse. Right. Oh, for sure. And it's crazy. I mean, we're sitting here doing this in early June, and pretty much every Western state has completed their drawings, with, yes. with a few exceptions. And it's this time of year where people are screaming and yelling, I didn't draw, it's been 14 years, I want to improve the point system. And no one ever wants to improve it for the greater good, it's always... Just for themselves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we have two Western states that don't have a point system. Idaho. Idaho and New Mexico. Yep. And so if you are the guy who just new to the game, you can apply in those states, and you have the same odds as me who've been applying there for over 20 years. Yeah. And I often wonder, is that better for hunting? I think it is. I, I, I do too. And, I mean, we've created <laughs> these elaborate schemes that have built cottage industries around it. I can quickly yeah. list off a half dozen companies that will do your Western tag applications yeah. for you. And so as the odds get worse and worse and worse because everybody else is jumping in and jumping in, then it creates this pressure of, oh, we need to find a way 
to make it better for me. I want my odds better. So <laughs> when you say that, Dan, that you don't know that it's discouraging, I'm glad to hear that because I, if I was in your shoes, I would feel discouraged. I'd be like, gosh, I'm going to... I, I don't know. I mean, and I have a different perspective that, you know, a lot of my intense hunting experience has been through the Mediator show and has been the last couple of years. And I, I don't know, it just feel those things feel like very special apex um, sort of ultimate hunt type things. And I don't know, I don't feel like everybody needs to, you know, it's a small population right. of animals. It's, 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 uh, it's pretty special. And I mean, no, I get it. I'm sure a lot of people feel discouraged and I get that, but, um, I don't, I also personally would just as easily like to go up to Alaska and, and hunt doll sheep or, you yeah. know, I don't, I don't have the crazy like bighorn bug or sheep bug like that. And, and, um, my sort of, you know, through the show and everything I've, just been on incredible hunts everywhere. Anyway, consider yourself yeah. fortunate yeah. <laughs> to not be afflicted. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's interesting that that you say that, Dan. That's very comforting for me. But one of the things that we've seen, and it kind of ties back to technology, is, and we we kind of been throwing sheep out there because it's it's kind of a pinnacle type thing, a rare experience, but. A lot of the western states have had to go to limited entry draw for the common species. I mean, Colorado had to go to a limited entry draw for mule deer. I think most people could have never envisioned Colorado being on a draw for mule deer at one point in their life. But because of demand, because of huge non-resident interest, because of development habitat and, and smaller herds, all of a sudden, even some of our common hunting experiences are now, you have to apply in the lottery, in the West, anyhow. I wanted to loop it back in because of media and because of what we're doing right now and your, and your, and your <laughs> website. I mean, right. the word is out. Yes. I mean, I, everybody can have that information right there. Yeah. And I think there's also, along with technology, comes a sort of a interesting idea of people feeling like they um, are entitled. There's, I think there's a tie oh, between yes. entitlement and, and technology. And so I think that's a thing with the sheep hunt too, or any kind of draw. I don't know. I don't think everybody necessarily needs or, you know, you're not going to no. get every hunt you want. You're not going to get anything, everything you want. So I remember probably 20 years ago when there were a bunch of uh, statewide deer harvest hearings Mm -hmm. And the proposal to the hunting public was, uh, do you want to hunt every year or do you want to put in for permits and have bigger bucks in a lot of these hunting districts? Yeah. And the overwhelming attitude from the public was they want to hunt every year. Right. And, and, but but right shortly after that, the state of Montana did get some limited entry deer units yeah. for mule deer. But... Uh, so, You've got that's called management, though. Exactly. When you're looking at Colorado, if you get 250,000 hunters, you've got to have some limitation or you right. wouldn't be a responsible manager. Especially when the hunter in the field is now well more equipped, both, yes. both in his education and his technology, to be way more lethal. So I think we as the hunting community have to accept that our habits are putting us further down the path of more limited entry permits yes and as we have more limited entry permits 
the elaborate schemes these states have come up with diver, de, deserve a little more scrutiny of yeah. are they a plus or a minus? Which then gets us to the next topic that this one's going to piss off a lot of people <laughs> one way or the other. Because right now, when people don't draw in the West, the number one thing you read about is, well, these animals live on federal land. I should have as much right as a non-resident as you do as a resident. Mm. And it's, it's hard not to have a heated discussion about it because we're talking about hunting opportunity here and people take it pretty serious. But the the common question as it's, I, I kind of phrased it that way of, well, why should you and Montana have more opportunity for those elk than I do if they live on the Gallatin National Forest? And the, there's a reason why. Um, there's a, a historical reason, a very good reason why it is and how there's, in this country, there's no connection to who owns the land to the deer or the elk that stands on that land. And people are like, bull crap. And, well, I'm, I'm here to tell you there is. What, Wasn't okay. there a court case on the East Coast right. about clams, Chesapeake yeah. Bay? Exactly. 1846 or yeah, something? Yeah, 1842. And that's, 1842, yeah. okay. And, so, uh, and that's the precedent, I that, believe. That's the precedent that started state uh, purview state trusteeship of wildlife. Right. And so what that case was, it's called Martin versus Waddell. And not Michael Waddell, the guy on the bone collector yeah. <laughs> I think it, maybe it was his grandfather or something. <laughs> Anyhow, Martin versus Waddell was exactly what you said, Bernie. 1842, some landowner said, I own the shellfish that are on the tide flat, and you people can't come and get them. And so it went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. So you think about what the makeup of the Supreme Court was at that time, 1842. There were probably some people whose parents, grandparents, or they knew someone back in the revolutionary days. Sure. And knew why some of the decisions of this Constitution were made the way they were. And one of the things the courts looked at is that when this country was founded, any right not granted to the federal government was retained by the state under the 10th Amendment of the Constitution. And so for this landowner to come forward and say, under the 5th Amendment, which defines property rights under the Constitution, I own those, the court said, wait a second here, we're going to look at this. And really what they said is, you might have been granted that by the King of England, but when we fought this Revolutionary War, those rights were severed. And oh, by the way, People came to this country from Europe to get away from their religious persecutions, their taxation without representation, all kinds of things. And if they wanted the king to still own the deer, they would have granted that to the kings, i.e. the landowners, in the, as part in the of colonies. the colonies. Right. Instead, the court said, no, the states, you're going to hold this wildlife, wherever it moves and whatever form it's in, you're going to hold it in trust for the citizens of your state. And now I, I, the colonists don't have to worry about getting hanged for killing the king's deer anymore. <laughs> so I, 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 none of us can go back and put ourselves in those shoes. But to me, it comes as no surprise that these colonists would say, we are not going to grant the rights and wildlife to others because they came from a place 
where you got your arms chopped off, you had to give away your second born because you shot a rabbit over on the king's grounds. And so people are like, well, what does that have to do with anything, Randy? Well, since that case in 1842, the Supreme Court has said that the states will hold wildlife as a public trust asset. In other words, the, the state is the trustee to manage for their citizens of that state, no matter where it lives. And the public trust doctrine goes back to Roman times, and it's commonly used for assets that are hard to own or hard to acquire and that are transient. It's most, most commonly used in water law or often used in water law. How do you own the Pacific Ocean? How do you own the Mississippi River? So, because it's transient and hard to own, just like wildlife. So, I'm, what I'm getting at here is when someone makes the case that because you're a quasi-owner of federal lands by virtue of being a U.S. citizen, that somehow that entitles you to hunting opportunity, the courts in the United States have said there's no connection between land ownership and hunting opportunity. Zero. None. <laughs> and I I sympathize with these people because I'm a non-resident <clears throat> in 49 other states. That's right. And they say, oh, you live in Montana. That's why you promote it the way it is. It, it's not that at all. But, man, you talk about some knockdown oh. drag outs. Oh, yeah. It, and I can sympathize with them. It's it irritated me for decades that as a U.S. citizen, I couldn't hunt doll sheep, grizzly bear, coastal brown bear, or mountain goats in Alaska, even though I'm a U.S. citizen. I had to move there right. to do it. You 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 couldn't hunt them without without hire, an outfitter. Without hiring I'm an sorry, outfitter, right? Without an outfitter, right? And uh, so I eventually moved there for a few years. But uh, in order to do that, in order to do that, that was yeah. one reason. Yeah. But uh, it is frustrating for somebody living in Massachusetts who wants to hunt the wilderness in Wyoming and right. And, and you know, from that has come laws, just like you say, Bernie. Wyoming wilderness. You, we as non-residents cannot hunt the wilderness areas of Wyoming without cutthroat fishing. You can go backpacking. You can go berry picking, but you can't hunt anything in the wilderness areas in Wyoming without having an outfitter. Right? Huh? Makes no sense. Yeah. I think it's the only state in the lower forty-eight that has that restriction. It, it is the only state. So yeah. we look at the Absorky Beartooth Wilderness Area. Most of it's in, in Montana. But some of it's in Wyoming. So if I have my Montana tag, I'm fine. But if I had a Wyoming tag in an adjacent unit, I'm screwed if I cross right. over into that state. So I understand the frustration that people have with this. And the point I'm trying to make here, and it's a long-winded thing, um, we're, we have this demand for hunting. All the technology, you know, my Hunt Talk forums a contributor to it. My TV show, Fresh Tracks, is a contributor to it. Is increasing the demand for the hunting opportunity. And as we do that, we are going to have to face these, I guess, symptoms of uh, that people express of, I want to come and hunt more. I live in Wisconsin. I live in Virginia. I want to come out west and hunt more. I understand that, but the courts say, you know what? The states don't have to share any of it with you. So I've adopted the theory that, hey, if Nevada wants to allocate 10% of their tags, New Mexico 
that's 10% or 6% more than they're required to under the law. So that's a good point. Is the glass completely empty or is it partly full? So I, I, and this, this is a topic we're going to get into in future podcasts in a big, big way. And, And the reason being is we have this movement afoot and I'm not going to go into it here, but it's about disposing of the federal public lands or transferring them to the state. Yes. I mean, Oh, Bernie's over here like, oh my gosh, what a harebrained scheme. I can see it. And and Dan, you and I have talked about this a lot of what that would mean to hunting in America. Um, but the the point is, how do you tell the guy in Wisconsin, hey, I want you to stand up and protect our interest in these federal public lands because you own part of them. And he says, well, you guys, you charge me 30 times more to come and hunt, and you only let me hunt every 14 years. I'm sorry, I'm busy today. I mean, we who live in the West and are advocates for these public lands have to figure out where that balance is. Yeah, we have some huge expectations of yeah. those non-residents. Right. And, and, and they fund our agencies yes. in a heavy way. Very much so. And we have legislatures in the West or ballot initiatives in the West that are just laying the leather to these guys. I mean, look, what happened in Montana when the ballot initiative increased our fee to non-residents significantly? We went from having all of our tags on a drawing and selling out every year where your odds... Didn't we have like 20% left over one year? Yeah. yeah. So now, because of the huge fee increase, we got leftover tags. Yeah. Idaho increased their fee even before the uh, their legislature increased it before we did in Montana. And Idaho's never sold out their tags since then. So I, I, I think, and we're going to get into these topics going forward, um, and I'm hoping people will show up on the Hunt Talk Forum and give us more thoughts and ideas on this, but... When we have this much demand and we have different interests, different laws, different court cases about how we're going to allocate a scarce opportunity, we're not all going to sit around the campfire, hold hands and sing kumbaya and say, yeah, we're all on the same page. So with what we've just talked about, I'm sure I'm going to get a bunch of emails saying, Randy, you know good SOB. (laughs) And I got Bernie sitting over here laughing at me, looking at me saying, Hey, I've I've lived the good old days of hunting, and that's <laughs> that's going to get me to the last question because we're, we're going to have to wrap this up. But I I'd be interested, Bernie and Dan, of your thoughts about one: Have we lived the good old days, or are the good old days still? Are are we in the good old days today? Are they behind us, or are they ahead of us? And do you see hunting being better or worse 20 years from now? I'll start with you, Bernie. You're on the spot. That's a tough question. Um, I saw some really good old days in North Dakota when I was growing up. Duck hunting 10, 15 miles from home. Pheasant hunting 30 miles, 40 miles from home. Uh, posted land was rare when I was a kid. When you, when you say posted, you mean... Uh, a no trespassing. No trespassing. In, in North Dakota, everything is open, private land, unless it's posted. Right. Unlike Montana, which I think is a terrible situation. Uh, came about about 20 years ago, as I remember. But I remember when 
deer hunting was wide open in the western part of the state, and it was tough to find a buck bigger than a three by three. Now it's permits only, and probably better hunting. I don't know. I haven't hunted out there in years. Uh, I remember my father going out to western Montana in the late 50s and all during the 60s while I was gnashing my teeth and going to school and <laughs> wanting to go along. And he, he probably had a 25% success rate hunting elk. And after I got into my career and everything and Dad started coming hunting with me, he, he died three and a half years ago. He was almost 94, by the way, my father. Jake, but we usually one of the two of us got an elk. Yeah, and so the elk hunting has really improved in the last fifty years. Okay, mule deer numbers are down almost everywhere. Uh, are we? So do you? I think we still are in the good old days. And, and look at the look at the harvest percentages that we have in Montana, for example, and Wyoming for deer elk antelope they're they're still high yeah it's tougher to get access than it was 50 years ago uh but when you look at trophy quality i mean there there are all kinds of animals entered in the record books in the last 15 years 10 years um so it's not like the quality of game is being usurped yeah looking to the future oh boy that's difficult for me. Human overpopulation is a threat. This land transfer is a threat. Legislation, anti-hunting legislation is a threat. I see a lot of obstacles on the on the horizon. Yeah. Uh, that's my opinion. Okay. Dan, are we in the good old days or are they yet to come? I think for some people, it's definitely the good old days. I, yeah. I think, you know, for myself... Growing up in similar area you did, I duck hunted all the time anywhere I wanted and grouse hunted in, in Minnesota where you grew up. And yeah. uh, we didn't have a whole lot of deer opportunity in Minnesota. We hunted these tiny little pieces of public land and were full of orange-covered guys. And it wasn't very fun, honestly. I was, I was much more into the bird hunting just because there's a lot more opportunity. Yeah. But, you know, after four years on the road with, with Steve and, I mean – I think it's I have a skewed perspective a little bit, but man, I sure don't see any uh, real issues with me getting all the hunting and outdoor activity that I want every you know in right. every direction right now. I don't feel limited, um, and yet I'm not you know I'm not your thinking about hunting 360 300 days a year like right. other than for my job here. I think that uh, you know, for certain species like turkeys, and, and think like now is probably the good good old days for turkeys. There's turkeys everywhere. There's yeah. opportunity everywhere. I think it's um, the good old days in a lot of ways. Maybe partly because of the technology, it might be the beginning of the good days for uh, for people who maybe are interested in hunting or haven't grown up in a hunting. I think there's more opportunity to begin hunting. I, th- I think there's more of an awareness of hunting for. Uh, food reasons and for for other conservation reasons, I feel like there's new voices on the landscape. You know, yourself and Steve, and sort of this sort of whole movement of, of food based hunting. And I think that um, it's definitely probably a different good old days than you know 30, 50 years ago for sure. Than you know, my grandpa or my dad were younger. I think it's a very different 
place. And then in some ways it's not. I mean, you know, I can go buy an over-the-counter ticket and uh, tag in Montana and hunt elk and deer. And I mean, I I just bought all my tags for this fall. And I have more hunting opportunity at my disposal this year, having just moved to Montana than I ever have in my entire life. It, it seems yeah. amazing. Um, and 20 years down the road, I, who knows? I think that uh, we're engaged in really putting out a you know, sort of new brand of, of, of media and, and, uh, talk and discussion about hunting. I think these podcasts, um, and our, you know, respective TV shows go a long way in, uh, really, I don't know, necessarily recruiting, but really just kind of changing the tone and the conversation of hunting in America. And that's really important to me that, that we're able to, uh, you know, put out a really positive image of hunters and the outdoor lifestyle being connected to the land, showing hunting as a, as a very viable lifestyle that has a lot to do with your family, has a lot to do with, with your, your culture. I think, um, I think that's very great, but mm-hmm. but then again, you know, I've learned a lot about the political situation from you, and who knows? Yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I'm just hoping that uh, our sort of societal impact, as far as the message of hunting, goes somewhere. So in 20 years, um, people really understand that uh, you know there's a really positive slant to hunting in america and i think yeah. that's possible i mean oh, i'm yeah, optimistic I, about that but i think it's possible yeah i i see that as one of the big changes probably just in the last 10 years has been an acceptance of hunting among a food community that i never would what have is expected. the word i just locavore look yeah, yeah. locavore yeah i applaud it i mean yeah we, we can get anybody to approve hunting by wanting to eat wild game it's wonderful. Yeah. That scares some people, though, Bernie. There, there's some of the old stream establishment in hunting who that's, that's discomforting to them. Oh, gee. So, is it just because of the recruitment and we may have way more hunters on the scene? Is that why? Or I is it something it's, else? I think it's mostly that they're younger and they have a different approach and they look at the world through a different lens than someone 30 or 40 years older. And so, and as they become the spokespeople and the voice of hunting and the identity of hunting. There's some who are like, oh, man, that's not a bunch. A... Look at that bunch of Birkenstock wearing granola. Hill well, I, I, I can recognize them for that, but I, that doesn't intimidate me at all. Though. Well, that's, that's good to hear. <laughs> I mean, for me, the good old days are today. Uh, I, I grew up in Northern Minnesota and I remember when I was eight years old, they had a harsh winter. And they closed deer season in Minnesota. Wow. Because deer were scarce to start with. We still had wolves there. They never were extirpated from northern Minnesota. And then a harsh winter knocked them down. And so when I was growing up, I shot my very first deer I shot. I think it was 14 or 15, my first buck. And it was a little basket rack. There they call them six points. Here they'd call it a three-point. Um and we threw that in the back of the truck, and we drove up and down Main Street. And went, by the time you walked into my mom's little diner, everybody in town knew I'd shot a deer. And you were hailed as a hero <laughs> for a little six-point buck. And now, people, uh, I mean, almost to the point of abundance where people almost frown at, well, why'd you shoot that little year-and-a-half old thing? And we were talking about this one day, Bernie, about, goose hunting 
Oh yeah. If, if you shot a goose in my hometown, you were I mean, you were somebody. You either had the money to go to Saskatchewan or you just were one really good hunter. And now we got goose shit on every golf course in America. They're a nuisance. <laughs> yeah. You know? So and, and the same with elk. Growing up, I could not have imagined Randy Newberg being an elk hunter. It it just seemed that difficult, that far out in the realm. And now we have more elk on the North American continent than any time in my life. So as much as we have some species like mule deer that are in decline, and hopefully we can figure that out, I look at it and say, like you, Dan, there, there's so much opportunity if, if you really want it. If you want to go and invest the time to find it, it's there. And the abundance of wildlife that we have in this country, even in the face of a growing population, is remarkable. Thinking about elk like that, how far back would you have to go in history to find a year when there were more elk then than now? I would say you'd have to go back 150 years. Probably. Yeah. I I mean, that's... And the geese, I used to go over to the Forsyth area, Mile City Forsyth, Heisham, you would see 10,000 birds in the air at one time. Right. When the, when they were really flying well off the Yellowstone River. Uh, I thought it was in heaven. Right. And, and so that, that tells me that the good old days are yet to come. And, and for me, whether or not those good old days are there in 20 years gets back to a point you made, Dan, about the politics. We came through a period of restoring wildlife in North America to great abundance by making wildlife conservation an apolitical issue. It wasn't a party issue. It wasn't really even in state legislatures or in Congress. It was handled at commission levels by local rod and gun clubs. And if there's one big change I've noticed in the last 10 to 15 years, it's that interest groups have taken our issues and dragged them over to the political arena. They know we're not geared up for that. Most of our representation groups like Ducks Unlimited or the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or whatever are nonprofits. They're not even allowed to go and do large-scale lobbying. So we've got people who've grabbed our, our issues, brought them over to the political football game, and we're not prepared to do it. And if we don't get schooled up and organized and ready, then those good old days that I think could be there 20 years from now, I think that's one of the pivot points of whether or not it's, it's going to be there. Very good point. Very good point. And so, uh, but Dan is the producer of this, and uh, he's given me the signal of, hey, Randy, you've been talking a long time. <laughs> so... Um, I want to thank Bernie for being here, Dan, for, for talking me into this. And uh, I want to thank everyone who's been listening. And what I would ask is if you've listened to this, is please go out to the Hunt Talk Forum and go to the podcast portion. Let me know what you guys want for topics. We've already got a lot of them, but we're, we're going to get into some serious stuff. Now that we've given you the overview of where this podcast is going, We're probably going to pick one topic, maybe two at the most, for each subsequent podcast. And we're going to get into some knockdown, drag out, screaming, yell matches. I also want to know guests who people want to have. Because I don't want this to just be a bunch of guys who are all nodding their head at the same time. I mean, if there's anything that the outdoor media is guilty of in today's world, 
it's that we all either think alike or at least on the surface we all behave alike. Um, so that's, uh, I guess, do they call that a wrap, Dan? Well, do you want to um, mention your air times for your upcoming shows or your yeah. new, new website? Maybe yeah, I mentioned some of that stuff. See, that's why we got a production guy. So he, <laughs> he keeps that stuff on track. So, yeah, what, what you guys are going to find is uh, our TV show, Fresh Tracks, is going to premiere on the Sportsman Channel. Uh, it's Wednesday nights at, and I'm going to give you mountain times because that's where I live and what I think. It's going to be 9.30 in the evening mountain time. Um, Sportsman Channel, we've been there for quite a long time now. And the other thing that we got coming up is we're building, and it's going to be ready. It's a, a new website called randynewberg.com, and it's where you're going to find everything you want to know about this podcast, about our Hunt Talk Forum, about our TV show, Fresh Tracks with Randy Newberg, and you're also going to get the opportunity to download all of our old episodes and our new episodes. Um, there's going to be links on that site. Go to randynewberg.com, and you're going to see a download button. And if a lot of you don't watch our show because you don't get a TV package or whatever, well, this is going to be your chance to get it. You can load, download it to a device, watch it anywhere, anytime, however you want. Um, and then we're going to have another sweepstakes again this year, Dan, where I'm going to take a hunter with me. Um, and the rules of how that works, those are out at randynewberg.com also. So I, thanks for reminding me. Oh yeah. It's lots of good stuff going on. So, yeah. So anyhow, folks, thanks for listening. And, uh, you're going to get another chance in two weeks. We're going to release these. Have we decided what day we're releasing these? I believe Wednesdays. Okay. We're going to release these on Wednesdays every other week. So, when you go out to randynewberg.com, you'll know. Here it is. We'll let you know. And if you want to subscribe to our, our contact stuff, we'll even email you the link to yeah. to, to download it. So. And while you're at it, check out the Meat Eater podcast. Um, yeah. And very soon here, you're going to have all kinds of hunting and outdoor uh, listening availability. The Hunt Talk podcast, Meat Eater podcast, and it's, it's good. you won't be bored anymore. No, it, well, if they are bored, it's of their own creation. So, Dan, Bernie, thanks a lot, guys. Thank you thanks for having me. me. Bye bye.